Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Michael David Clay. <laughs> Not knowing that it's uh, any more than it's ever been, there seems to be a lot of individuals in the world today that just aren't content. They aren't satisfied. And contentment and satisfaction in that same sort of manner or way of looking at it gets harder and harder to find. And with that, I suppose, you have to somewhat lament. Uh, maybe there's a time and a place when satisfaction and contentment or dissatisfaction, malcontent, uh, could be seen as useful. Uh, there's probably much to be said about it being a trigger or at least a uh, precipitator, <laughs> precipitant of uh, a need for change. There is some degree of awareness. But at the same time, there probably should also be some balance. How to balance that out, though? Uh, it seems like you would have to know, as the individual, better than anybody else, what contentment means. Maybe it gets back to this idea that you would have to be the one that would know yourself better than anybody else. So you would know what you want in life. That also seems to, to be a truism. Uh, if you know who you are, what you want in life, then as much as you could go about your life doing those things, <laughs> measuring yourself by your own definitions or standards, not someone else's, uh, maybe that is the key to contentment. Maybe that is the key to being satisfied or at least finding the balance, uh, knowing as much dissatisfaction, malcontent might seem the opposite. It, it's a flag. I don't know if it's a red flag, but early on when you first kind of begin to recognize it, it starts to lead you in other directions or at least considerations. Uh, maybe something's missing. Maybe I need to change a bit my course in life. Psychology Today, April of 2022. Satisfaction. The ability to be happy with who you are, where you are, and what you have is a power that those who are never satisfied may want to emulate. Lawrence Samuel, PhD. I have a friend who might be considered by many to be unsuccessful. A young adult, her professional and personal lives have not yet taken off. And while she's keenly aware of this, she's not especially bothered by it. By a different set of measures, though, I would say she's very successful. She's intelligent and funny and is known as a kind and generous person. She cares for her mother with whom she lives and walks dogs and babysits to earn money. She can't afford luxuries, but she's well-liked and spends her time as she wishes, and she's happy. Our classic narratives of success are heavily defined by achievement, acquisitions, and upper mobility. Those who don't subscribe to these narratives are often cast as losers. Yet a body of research shows that the so-called winners are actually no happier. In fact, according to several studies, outer-directed measures of success are actually less correlated with contentment and life satisfaction than inner-directed ones. 
I propose an alternative narrative of success that is more likely to lead to happiness than the one we have been taught to embrace. Those who prioritize inner-directed success know this path. They avoid comparisons to others, knowing that stacking your achievements, no matter how significant, against those of everyone else is an unwinnable proposition. They have a holistic view of themselves, taking their self-worth from a consideration of themselves as complete, unique individuals and knowing that no one can be more successful at being you than you. They celebrate their victories, no matter how big or small, and accept failures, learning lessons and moving on. And they prioritize relationships, inherently knowing that humans are social organisms and that success can and should be defined by how we relate to others and ideally improve their lives. Again, satisfaction. The ability to be happy with who you are, where you are, and what you have is a power that those who are never satisfied may want to emulate. Lawrence Samuel, Ph.D., Psychology Today, April 2022. So for all those influencers out there, <laughs> congratulations. There is something inherent in all human beings to be influenced. And because <laughs> it is a social dynamic, hence we call it social media, we're paying attention. It's just our nature. I do think that there's a certain degree also of our nature that sort of lends us in a basic way to doing that. It really may have nothing to do with social dimensions necessarily, other than it may be someone else other than ourselves. That doesn't sound too social, does it? Doesn't sound too relational. But it is. To know who you are, what you are, what you want in life oftentimes requires you to be the opposite of something. As much as we may lament the fact that humans tend to think in binary and dichotomous terms, they do. And as much as, again, that may be a great lament, maybe especially to influencers, at the same time, that is the highest order of human operation when it comes to thinking. That's what science is. Science is binary. The thesis hypothesis model of science is binary. You don't say, well, maybe it's somewhere in the middle. You either accept it or you reject it. Now, you could say, well, where then is the middle? <laughs> Balance, satisfaction, contentment. Well, it probably comes from a lot of those smaller, <laughs> many, many, many innumerable, as they say, of those same kind of decisions. Lesser, smaller, lesser significance. But one by one, step by step, we put a composite together. It's inductive and or deductive reasoning. And with that, we begin to define as true, false, right, even wrong. It gets a bit moral. But again, that's what we're talking about. What's right for you may not be right for somebody else. Does it make it wrong? It maybe doesn't make it wrong in moral terms. 
But it, what it does say is, though, you have to be at least as loyal in that sort of way that morality kind of captures it to yourself, which doesn't mean you can't change. <laughs> it doesn't mean that influence is beyond us. It just means you have to test it. You have to try it out. You have to figure it out. Another basic premise, I think, of all this contentment, satisfaction sort of narrative or talk would be that the human body operates in much the same sort of binary dichotomous sort of way. You're either hungry or you're not. You're either thirsty or you're not. You're either tired and worn out or you're not. And if you're not, then it's probably because you've gotten all those primary drives met. What I'm trying to capture is the body uh, is not really all that sophisticated. The mind is, but the human body's primary operation is on and off, which is about as binary as it gets, dichotomous as it gets. Now you could argue, well, I ate this morning, I'm still feeling hungry, but I'm not starved. <laughs> That's a human operation in terms of cognition or thinking. All of it's human operation. But that particular aspect, we can consciously, willfully exercise. And it's useful because <laughs> indeed, the moment you start to be hungry doesn't mean you're going to starve to death. Or if you should be very, very hungry and might even have gotten to the point of consideration, conscious awareness, thinking, am I really starving? And you've come to the conclusion you are, you can't eat. It still doesn't mean you're going to starve to death. But in some ways, basic survival is fight or flight. I need to eat or I'm going to starve to death. That would be protection in some ways. Eating is good for the body. It protects us. It, it uh, creates a circumstance by taking in nutrients that our body can survive. It's a life or death sort of proposition if you take it to the level of starvation. Now, maybe it isn't if you're not going to starve, but that's also part of the problem or maybe not the problem, the solution, the formula. You have to think about that. The body, in a physiological sort of way, doesn't. But that's, again, why it's a human operation. The body has a brain to make some analysis. And there's all kinds of rooms for miscalculations based on distortions. Well, it feels like I'm going to starve to death. I felt this way before, and I didn't starve to death, but I knew I could have, or I didn't eat for whatever, whatever, and... Uh, I got sick, and you know, usually sick is associated in a bodily sort of way with not feeling good, that ill, depending again on severity. It could be life or death. But in most cases, it's reflexive. Most cases, it's reactive. And in most cases, on a neuronal level, central nervous system, nervous system level in general, it's either on or off. It's called potentiation, not to get into too much of the details of it, but you have to hit a threshold of excitement. The nervous system, the neurons have to fire to a certain level, multitude, numbers, in order to get a response that otherwise actually makes its way to wherever it needs to go to to get a reaction or response or to complete the reaction or response that it seems to be programmed to. What's it programmed to? Pleasure pain. 
<laughs> hedonism. If it feels good, then most likely, at least initially, the body's not going to reject it until there's some dimension of pain that gets recognized. And it may take a while, which again complicates it even more. So this notion of satisfaction and contentment isn't entirely a psychological operation or a mental operation or a cognitive operation. And though I am going to really, really, really promote the idea of a strong sense of self and identity, even to the point where I kind of equated that earlier on in the podcast to morality, and we all know what sometimes it's like to encounter moral people who have taken high roads and are going to move off of them. (laughs) They're convicted and convinced. And in some ways, I admire that. But they do tend to be so single-minded that they're really not open to additional data and input, which in some ways then means they're not probably going to get any sort of feedback that might alter or add to or better refine their proposition, whatever it might be on, the narrative, even if it's themselves. But at the same time, as you go through life, you should probably begin with that. Which is also kind of an interesting thought. Most of us don't. When you're a child, you really are what your parents make you to be. Now, you can use that in a fatalistic sort of way and say, oh, well, that explains why I'm so screwed up. Well, maybe it's true. (laughs) Or why I'm so successful. Or your parents, especially with the successful part, may lay claim to some of that. But somewhere along the way, as we're maturing and developing, we come to a point psychologically where not only is identity available to us, a sense of, again, distinction, contrast, separation of ourselves from other people, one of those Piaget sort of stages of development is that ability not only to think abstractly, but separate yourself in some sort of abstract terms for the people around you. In short, when you're able to do that, you begin to understand you're different from everybody else. Up to that point, you're just one and the same. Now, does that mean that they own you or that you're a so-called slave to them? No. (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't because we know there'll come that developmental milestone where you'll be able to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm my own person here. But the minute that you accept that premise or that comes to you and you accept that possibility, the premise is the possibility that you can (laughs) define your not only life but who you are in your life, uh, that's incredibly liberating and freeing. Because really, if you live in a society that rewards you for that or sees that as advantageous or adaptive, then they're going to say, well, go find yourself. Discover who you are. Be your own person. Just don't end up in jail. (laughs) Basically, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't harm other people. Try to follow the rules as much as the rules might be for everyone. But otherwise, additional to that, be yourself. In the privacy of your home or surrounded by people who sort of agree with you, In the sense of, it's okay for you to be you. Or at least with that idea in mind. It's okay for you to be you and you can be, I can be me with you. And 
We've got enough common dimension here and what we think life should be, the definitions, who we are, we can get along. That in itself creates a sense of balance and contentment. But everyone starts being defined by others, influencers, your parents. It's called socialization. But when you do reach that milestone, then it becomes yours. You become you, and you have to own you. You begin to take charge of the research, the study. Your life narratives up to that point, though they may define you, and there's a lot to be said about habits. We're creatures of habit. That's why I think all humans are inclined to be addicts secretly. Some addictions, some things that we're addicted to are more dangerous and destructive than others. But we all are based on physiology. I would think the, again, the more eloquent, elegant sort of model of adaptability would dictate if you could do stuff without thinking too much about it, you might actually be able to take in more data and with that make a decision to concentrate on the particulars that are most important in whatever case, context, whatever uh, immediate moment you're in. And that's adaptive. And that's really how subconscious, psychological terms, and conscious operations are supposed to work. It's not really just going back to that notion of reflexive, the, the nervous system, it's reactive. Now we're adding the dimensions of thinking. Higher ordered, I would call them operations. More than just reflex, reaction, being triggered all the time. Just simple pleasure pain. Your brain, as we mentioned Piaget, that was his whole, everything he did. His whole life's pursuit was to help us understand psychological operations in context to identity. It would be psychological development of what? Of you. But not only the physical development, but the psychological that includes an identity. And even as the article mentions, the way that we relate to other people. I'm going to take a moment. Remind you, our listeners, you're listening to Word with Michael David Clay. So if I've done that at least somewhat well, by the time you get to be an adult and you go through this, these processes as I've kind of spoken of them, and there's more I could say about them and there's maybe others that I didn't mention, but they're all working together toward this end of making you a person. You have to define for yourself in I sort of terms not only what your life is going to be about, but it has to take into consideration some of the aptitudes we used to call them, probably still call them, some of the history of achievement, the things that you've done. And in and of itself, when you do that analysis, it tells you whether you're going to be the president of the United States, if you want to be that. Or you're going to be the president of a CEO. Or you're not. I know that sounds binary. But again, that's how it starts. I'm going to focus my life on charity work. 
than we used to call it. Join the Peace Corps. And I suspect there's still probably a Peace Corps out there. I'm going to devote myself to the more important social dimensions now that we've already secured most of the physical, the safety sort of issues in our personal lives, individualized, our culture is seemingly secure. It gives me Maslow's hierarchy, take care of the basic needs at the bottom, the broadest aspect of the pyramid, the bottom, the base, and then as you work up, lesser and lesser, fewer and fewer, because sometimes that can be hard to get those met, but self-actualization is the pinnacle. So you take the highest order of thoughts, know who you are, come up with these narratives, and kind of this sort of sense of morality about what's right, what's wrong for you in your life, hopefully not to impose that on others. But if you get to the place where you have all the physical threat of life and death, or it's not so imminent or immediate, the risks of your day-to-day existence, you can devote an awful lot of energy towards social pursuits. Now, is it always going to be that way? No, because just like I used the analogy of hunger earlier and starving, you eat, and the minute you eat, you're going to start to get hungry again. And though we have a pretty readily available supply of food, maybe there's a maybe you're stranded somewhere in a, in a scenario that doesn't allow you to have food, and you may have to make it in a frame <laughs> to go for days. Maybe then you might consider all of it a bit different, but most of us don't live there. And so we don't have to attend to money and resource and national defense and (laughs) existential threats and such like that. Or we have to appreciate they may change. But the minute you start to eat, the moment you eat, you start to get hungry, you're going to begin, your thoughts are going to begin to be turned toward getting food again. And all I'm trying to say is there's all sorts of things that could get in the way of you getting food. Doesn't happen often. Most of us don't starve to death. That's why I use it as an analogy, good analogy. Although I, I want to, would want to show respect and politely say there's some people who probably grew up in homes where they didn't know they were going to eat. Poverty was so bad. Part, so we, we really need to remember that too. Because again, my experiences, aptitudes, achievements, socialization, culturalization, what I was exposed to, how the rules of what I grew up with may not really always apply. Because you never know in a moment when the world may change. I think this recent pandemic that we've had with COVID proves that point well. And nobody thought it could happen that radically that quickly, but it did. It does. It can. Maybe it's mostly on a lesser scale. People get injured. People get hurt. People suffer, uh, again, some sort of harm uh, that really is life-threatening. People are abused daily. I mean, we could go on and on and on with the actual list. Most of us, thankfully, don't have to endure that. But if we've never dealt with it, then all of a sudden we have to. We have to begin to realize our definition is going to change. But with that, all this that is of highest order, self-actualization, really speaks to the completion of you totally as the person, physically and psychologically. And for the sake of probably neutralizing, mitigating some of those risks, that's a powerful stabilizing force. 
And it always gives you then, if you've done it properly, a reference to come back to knowing who you are. Because you've got to start somewhere. If you are a blank slate, <laughs> when you begin life and people then begin to immediately, upon birth, program you, life itself begins to program you, then there's probably an advantage to that to the extended degree that you may make modifications or changes, but they're not going to be radical ones. It's hard to radically change because you're compromising all of that and you're starting with maybe, not fatally, but if you survived it, maybe to the point where you have to start as a blank slate again and you have to relearn all of that. I mean, that in and of itself sounds a bit formidable. But presuming there's something adaptive about personality, about identity, not only Piaget, but Eric Erickson in a psychosocial sort of dimension talked about that in developmental terms, stages, milestones. But here's the end of it, at least for the podcast today. That's the best position to negotiate reality. And that includes social relationships as much as just relationship with yourself. But if you don't know who you are, you're not satisfied in the sense of knowing not only the definitions, but being able to go do the things you need to do to accomplish and achieve those things that otherwise are part of what you want your life to be, that maybe are representative of what brings pleasure or what helps us to avoid pain, or maybe it's all instrumental. Maybe you want to endure pain for the greater end. But it's up to you. It's not me to call that. It's not someone else. Now, you can survey others in others' lives. We love to do that. Well, you know, maybe I could be this. Mostly that's an adolescent thing. Hopefully by the time you get to be an adult, you figure most of that out. But, you know, some people always reserve a bit of their who they are to the possibility of something new. They like that. That's okay too. But you have to know you because it's the touchstone. You have to come back to you in some way and begin to do this comparison, contrast. But it wouldn't be to the betterment or the worse of others. It wouldn't be moralizing necessarily. Again, I think laws kind of get into some of that, but they're for a highest order of social dimension. But as we relate to other people, hopefully others will feel equally strong and then not threatened in who they are or because they know so well who they are that they can entertain different perspectives. They can follow the science. I, I, I hate to keep coming back to that because it sounds so cliche anymore. But it's true. I'll use it. It means something. It captures a lot. It's a phrase that most of us have heard, maybe ad nauseum, but a phrase that most of us have heard. But it's true. You have to do your own testing and know who you are as it may then relate to you. And that really is adaptability instrumentally captured. Don't be a slave to anyone or anything. That's addictions. Be your own person, but realize you've got to negotiate that with a lot of other individuals. And when you do it in that context, there's going to be plenty of room for opposition, contrast, and possibly 
argument if people feel threatened or they're not psychologically at that pinnacle. Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization. Or maybe they have in some ways been deprived and they see you as an obstacle to getting what they want. There's again all sorts of ways that thankfully we do have good brains we may need to analyze and test. But my message today is that starting with that is not wrong. Being an individual is not wrong. And actually, according to the article, I believe what I got from the article, true satisfaction is being content with yourself, knowing who you are, being satisfied that you're doing this, following the science, empirically, soundly. And with that, that you're open to good feedback and input from others. Now, should you still be struggling with this, and I laugh only because all of us are, development, I don't believe, actually ever fully concludes. It's something that always goes on through our lifespan. And again, as I said earlier, mentioned earlier, there are plenty of, of triggers, causes, environmentally, socially, psychologically, Others, just natural environment that may cause us to not only recalibrate but have to maybe go back to some ground zero sort of moments in terms of, well, who am I really? And those are all good because if you follow the science, if you allow the process that seems to be innate, implicit in all of us to manifest itself, you emotionally and psychologically process, you, you understand yourself as an individual as you relate to the social and natural world around you and, and you don't carry big sticks and you don't look for enemies and you're not paranoid and you're open to information and knowledge, you're going to make changes. But they don't have to be so radical and they don't have to include casualty either to yourself or others. But should you be in a struggle right now and should it feel like you need some input from others, that's what psychological counseling is all about. And regardless of whom you might choose to seek out to help you with that, clinical psychologist, social worker, counselor, all of us are trained to help you not only know who you are, but help you to process in these terms. Again, satisfaction. The ability to be happy with who you are, where you are, and what you have is a power that those who are never satisfied may want to emulate. Lawrence Samuel, PhD, Psychology Today, April 2022. <laughs> it's a power that those who are or aren't satisfied, depending on what circumstance situation they may be in, maybe all of us would want to emulate. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today on the podcast Word with Michael David Clay. And in that same sort of uh, way of thanks and appreciation, I would hope that you would have found something useful and would want to invite you back to our next episode. In the meantime, good health and good mental health. <laughs>